Lord, we call this portion of our worship service the prayer of illumination because we confess, we admit our hearts can be dark and even cold to your truth. And we need the Spirit to warm us up. We need the Spirit to open our minds. We need the Spirit to give us understanding. We need the Spirit to apply Christ to our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, may you be moving in a mighty way for the glory of Christ, according to the will of the Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And one more time, I will ask you, if you're able, if you're not, please stay seated, but if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word. As we continue to go through the early chapters of the book of Romans, this morning we are looking at the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. So friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is, true, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me let you into the inner world or the inner sanctum of the preacher and sermon preparation for just a second. And like my wife often says, and I say to her, it's a dangerous place to try to enter into <laughs> what goes on up here. So, you know, kind of enter at your own risk a little bit. But I'm letting you in here. When I prepare the sermon, let me tell you something. The studying is the easy part. The part where I'm grabbing the original languages and the commentaries and the articles and the books and I'm looking at how it all fits together and I'm looking, oh, there's verse 25 and how it goes with verse 29 and I'm doing that. That's fun. That's the easy part. Then what happens is Fridays and Saturdays hit and I'm like, I've got to take these gobs and gobs of notes and I've got to whittle it down into 30 minutes or else you will still be here when they're done that race up there <laughs> and you... Because you're sitting there right now going, we got to beat traffic. We know what traffic on race day can be like, and we gotta, we got to beat that traffic. And so what happens is, so we don't go into Sunday evening, I've got to turn all of that study into a clear, that's not easy, applicable, it's only getting harder now, understandable message, translating it into something that we can actually understand and apply to our lives and that is the tricky part. Now, were you paying attention to the word I just read? Law, if you keep the law, you break it. Circumcision, what's up with that? Uncircumcision, you're regarded as that. So I'm doing that this week. I'm going through my normal routine of sermon preparation when all of a sudden, and remember I prefaced this, entering into Jeff Birch's head is a dangerous place to go. All that could come to me was the popular idiom, don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> and then a phrase, and I don't know where this came from, 
but it originated in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, All That Glitters Is Not Gold. And you ask, what does that have to do with the passage? Well, let me tell you. It has everything to do with the passage because for a well-educated, upstanding, orthodox Jewish person, Israelite, for them, the law, the covenant, the Torah, and especially circumcision, that was their badge of honor. That was their identity marker. It was what made them them. And Paul says, all that glitters is not gold. Because Paul is making, and remember, Paul's not being anti-Jewish here. Okay, let's think about this. Paul himself was a Jewish person, an ethnic Israelite. And he's making the point, speaking to his own people. All that glitters is not gold. In other words, what is on the outside, the badge, the identity marker, may not be what is on the inside. And what is on the inside, the reality, that is what counts. And here's what Paul is saying, and we need to hear this, is that due to the, and listen carefully, the failure of religion, the failure of what we make our identity, what we count on most, what we need, and here's what Paul is getting at, what we need is a renewed, regenerated heart. In other words, we do not need self-improvement. We need a new us. And even though the name of Jesus is not mentioned in this passage, that is what's being spoken of here. We have to read this passage thinking of what Paul told the Corinthian church when he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Think about these words. If anyone is in Christ, that means if anyone believes the gospel, he's not a better you, he is not a self-improved you, he is a new you. You are a new creation. And so we want to ask the question, what does it mean to have a new identity? And what does it mean to embrace our true identity? And to do that, Paul tells us two things in this text. He tells us first to unmask our false identity to second, embrace our true identity. You got that very simple outline. Unmask your false identity and embrace your true identity. Okay, first of all, the false identity for the religious, the upstanding, because we need to remember the context of what Paul is talking about. Okay, this passage, Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, is part of a much larger whole that began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. And actually, this entire section, and you need to remember, in the original, there's no chapter breaks. Paul would send the letter, and somebody would stand up and read the entire letter before the congregation. There's no chapter breaks, but this, for us who have chapter breaks, this entire section begins at chapter 1, verse 18, and goes all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20. And what Paul is using... This entire section to outline is why everyone, in other words, we are all in the same boat, both the religious and the pagan absolutely need the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is no one who can save themselves. We need to remember that this is a letter, yes, written to the church, that is to Christians about 
the gospel. Paul is teaching Christians, yes, Christians, the gospel. You know why he does that? Because Christians don't understand the gospel. And it is Christians who need to make it their aim to understand the gospel, which he said, the thesis of his letter, was the very power of God for salvation. So maybe something a little bit bigger than just the forgiveness, and I'm not minimizing the forgiveness of sins, but maybe the gospel is something way bigger in its scope and in its reach. And I read an article earlier this week by a man by the name of Jim Widenauer, who works for Harvest USA up in Philadelphia. And he was explaining this particular passage of Scripture, actually the whole section from chapter 118 all the way through 320. It was actually, listen to what he has to say. He says, Paul begins in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, by talking about the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he writes, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the world here. And he writes, he says, Paul's scope here is much wider than the church. It's wide enough to include Fox News and CNN, Ellen and Jimmy Fallon, China, the EU, North Korea, New York, Venezuela, Planet Fitness, Lady Gaga, Snapchat, Walmart, and on and on. He says, this is our culture. This is the world's culture. The diverse mass of humanity descended from Adam. And he says, what does Paul have to say about this broadest category of people and of culture? He says, the judgment of God is upon them, and it's visible. It is on display. Remember, it says, the wrath of God is revealed for all to see against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And when we ask the question, how so, he says, by living out of a worldview that flows from a fundamentally flawed starting point. That starting point is denying the authority, the lordship of God, and instead making created things ultimate. And he says, what do we get? He says, the mass of immorality that flows logically and inevitably from a worldview in which all of nature is disassociated from God. And he says, it's plain to see. And you've got a list of all of the consequences of that, the paganism and the sexual immorality, the things against nature, vices that are easy to see. But then if you keep reading the list, he also lists vices that ought to shake us up as Christians as well. He mentions things like envy and boastful, foolishness and coveting, ruthless and gossips and malice. And so as this author says, he says, the thought that ought to be whispering in the minds of Paul's religious audience and in our minds is, huh, if these are the outworking of a God-denying worldview and their existence is a sign of God's judgment, then how do I account for these things, envy, coveting, gossip, malice, foolishness, in my life in spite of my claim to know God? And he writes, this is exactly what Paul is intending you to think. He is trying to wake you up and trouble you and jar you. Because then, and remember, no chapter breaks, but we read it in our English and we get to chapter 2, 
And Paul begins with the word, therefore. And he says, therefore, you. So not just the sexually immoral, not just the red light visible sins. You, the envious. You, the malicious. You, the unloving. You, the gossip. Have no excuse. In other words, if you get to the end of chapter 1, and you're kind of smugly looking down on others going, ha, those people. I'm glad I'm not like one of them. You are forgetting and missing Paul's point entirely. Widenauer says at least when they do these things, it is a logical consequence of their worldview. But if we do them, and we do, it proves something that should stop us in our tracks and terrify us. It proves that what is wrong with us is so bad that we, too, continue to rebel against God while claiming to acknowledge him. And in chapter 2, these are the people, people like us, who dress up on Sunday morning, who look pretty good. He's speaking to us, the chosen people of God, saying, maybe have a little humility. Stop feeling so smug. Because here he's talking to Israel, who's the chosen people of God. And he's saying, your outward label. See, that's what circumcision is. Don't get hung up on the physicality of it. It is your identity marker. It is that which defined Israel as Israel. Just like saying, my name is Jeff. Saying your name is, it is that which identifies you. He says that badge of honor, that identity marker can sometimes deceive. Because sometimes what is going on inside doesn't match up with the badge and the name on the outside. And then the badge means the opposite of what it says. See, look with me at verse 25. He says, for circumcision indeed is of value. And then he throws an if in there. Did you catch the if? Because that's the scary part. If you obey the law. The law that says, love God with all your being, with every fiber of who you are, with your mind and your heart and your affections and your emotions and your will. Love him with every ounce of your strength. And oh, by the way, the outflowing of that love and consumption of God is a love and a willingness to live sacrificially for others. And when? All the time. Whether you feel like it or not. So in other words, he says, for those people who can do that, circumcision is of value. But if you break the law, and are you thinking that's all of us? If you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, when a Jewish person, read a religious person to apply it to us, for us today a Christian, breaks the law, fails to love God and neighbor, his identity marker, his circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It has no value. You still physically have the badge, but your real standing before God is that of an uncircumcised person. And do you know what that would read for the Israelite person? A Gentile. And who were the Gentiles to the Jewish people? Oh, they only called them dogs. They despised them. And get this, this was not anything new for the Israelite. This message was given in the Old Testament. I'll just give you one example. The prophet Jeremiah, who in chapter 9 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. 
who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So far, so good. Then he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, outside without the inner reality. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised. And he doesn't stop there. For he says, and all the house of Israel who are uncircumcised in heart. Friends, even in the Old Testament, there was a difference between the outward sign and the inward reality. You think you have the marker of the identity, but it is a false identity. That's what Paul is saying. He's jarring us. And look what else. He continues, verses 26 and 27, he says, so if a man, notice what he does here, he's going to reverse it. He says, if a man who is uncircumcised, read a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded, and that word means counted. Same thing we get when we think about future, when we're thinking about justification that he's going to introduce in chapter 3. Will not his uncircumcision be counted, be regarded, be thought of, be treated as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Apparently, the point works in reverse as well. What happens if an uncircumcised person, a Gentile, keeps the law? They are counted as, they are regarded as circumcised. Now again, put yourself in the shoes of a faithful, orthodox, educated, upstanding Israelite. Does this, maybe think of this even as a Christian, or you're thinking, this sounds a little strange. Who actually is this Gentile who keeps the law? Show me this. I want to see this. No one keeps the law. To any upstanding Jewish person, how can an uncircumcised person be fulfilling the law? This is what Paul wants you to wrestle with. And this is what brings us to our final point. Embracing our new identity. Because verses 28 and 29 gives us the answer to verse 26. Look with me. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So think about this. In light of verse 26, your uncircumcision is regarded, is counted as circumcision. Why? Because you've kept the law. How is that even possible? Paul answers that. He says, your identity, your badge, what truly defines you, the circumcision we told, are told is a matter of the heart, and here's the key phrase, by the Spirit. Your true identity is by the Spirit. How do we get that? What is Paul talking about? Well, he's not talking about some sort of keeping the law. So when you read verse 26, the uncircumcised has received... You know, you're received as circumcision by keeping the law. He's not talking about kind of this 
moral, strenuous, rigorous, moral critic who is absolutely correct in every point of purity. No, he's talking about what it fundamentally means to be a Christian. What it fundamentally means to be a Christian. And he's saying a Christian is anyone. And this is radical for this time. A Christian is anyone, Jew or Gentile, educated or uneducated, rich or poor, white collar or blue collar, any race, any tongue, any tribe, any people, any language who has God's law written on the heart by the Spirit. He's talking about what it means to be a Christian. And again, Jeremiah prophesied about that. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declare this the Lord. Now listen to this next line, because here's how he's defining the covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and they will be my God. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you hear this? Jeremiah says, this is the covenant I will make with them. I will write my law on their hearts. They will be seen as keeping the law. They will be seen as law keepers and law fulfillers. How in the world can this be? As one commentator put it, puts it, Paul believed that through Jesus, the Messiah, Israel's God had actually renewed the covenant and was now welcoming into that new family all those irrespective of ethnic background and hence of outward badges like circumcision who believe the gospel. What he's doing here is sketching in very briefly the much fuller picture of the Christian life of the renewal of the heart by the Holy Spirit. So even though Paul does not directly mention Jesus by name, when he says by the Spirit, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit puts in operation the accomplishment, the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Listen to, and listen to how Paul describes that work later on in chapter 8. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And for the sake of our passage here, in Romans 2, I want you to take note of these next words. They say, in order that. That means for this reason, for this purpose. Everything he's talking about, God did through Jesus this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So guess what? If the law is fulfilled in us, those who have not been circumcised are regarded as circumcised because they've kept the law and were circumcised in heart 
And so again, as one writer puts it, he takes this holy and wonderful word, Jew, itself, and declares that when God works by the Spirit in a Gentile heart to produce the true fulfillment of the law, that Gentile is to be called Jew, even though he or she was not born into a Jewish family. Paul is talking in traditional Jewish language about the renewal of the covenant and claiming that it has taken place in and through God's Spirit. Do you hear that? If you believe the gospel and you're a Christian, you're a totally new you. You have a new identity, circumcised in heart. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in you. You are seen by God, not only as forgiven, but as a law keeper. That's how he sees you. Part of the family of God, a law fulfiller, circumcised in heart, whose praise is not from man, but from God. Let me close with this. How does this impact us practically? Friends, we have to learn to embrace our true identity. We have to learn to live out of our new identity. That means we have to, in one sense, and this I think is what Paul is getting at when he says, see, there's work to it, there's effort to it, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But we have to work for the right thing. Don't work to try to somehow keep the law. Don't work to try to keep some spiritual principles. Don't work for some strenuous moral effort. The law has been fulfilled in you. It is in you. You are seen by God. Think about this. You are seen by God as loving and joyful. The summary of the law, that love God and love people, that can be seen in things like 1 Corinthians 13 and the fruit of the Spirit. God sees you that. You're now working out what He's working in. Embrace your true identity. See, do we understand this? This is a struggle for us. I love how another writer put it. He said, the world tells us, and we so often tell ourselves, many lies about who we are. And he says, you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt, offended, rejected, You have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved one from all eternity and held safe in an everlasting embrace. All of that because of Christ. He's purchased your peace with God. Tim Keller, one of his more famous lines. See, we have to learn to think of Christ not just as our teacher, not just as our example, but think of him as our substitute. Tim Keller says, if you want to sum up the work of Christ, the way to do it is to go, he died the death, you should have died. That means the curse, the consequence of the law. That is on us. See, we, we didn't keep the precepts of the law. But that curse fell on Jesus. He died the death we should have died. But the other half of it is he lived the life we should have lived. Think of the implications of that. Jesus is our substitute. In God's eyes, you've lived the life of the perfect human you should have lived because Jesus lived it for you. So when God looks at you, he looks at you as having kept the law. Your praise is from God not from man. 
We need to learn embracing our true identity is seeing Jesus as our substitute, not only in his death, but in his life. He not only died for you, he lived for you. And what Paul is going to go on when we get to the end of chapter 3 and following is that is what the doctrine of justification is all about. That is the imputed, declared righteousness of God. He counts you. He regards you as circumcised. The old is gone. The new has come. Friends, it's a new discipline. It's a new way. That's why when Paul later on will say we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, it's not just what we think, it's how we think. This is a new way of thinking that it begins with seeing yourself as Christ sees you and living out of that. Embrace and live out of your true identity. And Father, this is a lifelong task for every single one of us. And as a matter of fact, I can't help but think sometimes it seems harder for me to do that than it does just to follow a couple of disciplined rules. It seems easier for me to say, just give me the three or four things I have to do and know I'm okay, rather than embrace this new identity, this new way of thinking. And so we need your Spirit. That's why it's put in operation by the Spirit. May we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, making more and more real to us every day the work of Christ as our substitute. In Jesus' name, amen.